Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by my friends over at ShopC60.com. If you haven't heard of Carbon 60 or otherwise called C60 before, it is a powerful Nobel Prize winning antioxidant that helps to optimize mitochondrial function, fights inflammation, and neutralizes toxic free radicals. I'm a huge fan of using C60 in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle to support your immune system, help your body detox, and increase energy and mental clarity. If you are over the age of 40 and you'd like to kick fatigue and brain fog to the curb this year, visit shopc60.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS for 15% off your first order and start taking back control over your health today. The products I use, I use their C60 in organic MCT coconut oil. They have it in various different flavors. They also have sugar-free gummies that are made with allulose and monk fruit. They also have carbon 60 and organic avocado and extra virgin olive oil. When it's combined with these fats, it absorbs more effectively. And carbon 60 is great as a natural energizing tool because it really helps your mitochondria optimize your energy production. Now, if you take it late at night, for some individuals, it may seem a little bit stimulating. So that's why we recommend taking it earlier in the day, and it will give you that great energy, that great great mental clarity that you want all day long. It will help reduce the effects of oxidative stress and aging and really help you thrive. So again, guys, go to shopc60.com. Use the coupon code JOCKERS to save 15% off your first order and start taking back control of your health today. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm doing a solo Q&A. You guys know that oftentimes I do these Q&As with one of my health coaches. Today I'm doing it solo and I'm going to be covering some really good topics, really good questions that you guys asked. We're going to talk about stevia and infertility. We're going to talk about intermittent fasting, some of the best intermittent fasting strategies how to deal with constipation. We're going to go through endometriosis and what some of the best strategies are for endometriosis. We're going to talk also about osteoporosis and what to do for bone loss and osteoporosis. So I'm going to jump right in and I've got a great question here from Jim on our YouTube channel. And also, if you guys want to ask a question or want to see where I'm answering questions, be sure to subscribe and follow me on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook. Those would be the best ways. Dr. Jockers, Dr. David Jockers. Look me up on those channels and you can ask questions. You can also email me at info at drjockers.com as well with your question that you want to get on one of these Q&A podcasts. So going to Jim, he says, I'm on a keto diet. My bowel movements are sporadic. There's no timing to it. Some days I go a lot and some days barely at all. If keto is natural, why would you need to do special things to help you have bowel movements? This is a really good question. And so whenever you start on any sort of diet change, 
there can be changes with your microbiome. Many of us have experienced this, whether it means more bowel frequency or less bowel frequency. So a diet change can certainly make a difference. Also, there's a lot of people that follow a keto diet, but they eat a lot of processed foods. There's a lot of things out there that are highly processed, but they are quote unquote keto. So that may be an issue here. I'm not sure, but that that certainly could be an issue. Also, a big thing with a keto diet is when you are going on a very low carb diet, your insulin levels drop. And that's important because we know insulin is a fat storage hormone. As long as insulin's elevated, we can't burn fat for fuel and we can't produce ketones. We also end up with blood sugar imbalances with more fat storage and more inflammation. So one of the benefits of a keto diet is it brings insulin down. Now, when insulin goes down, insulin, not only does it do the things I just talked about, getting sugar into cells and storing fat, but it also causes us to retain sodium. And so when we go on a low carb diet, like a keto diet and insulin drops, we now excrete a lot of sodium. So we actually need more salts and more electrolytes. One of the side effects or symptoms of low electrolytes can be constipation or just very sluggish bowel motility. So adding in more magnesium or more electrolytes in general, some more salts on your food, maybe a little bit of salt in your water can really make a big difference for getting your bowel movements working more effectively. So those would be some things that I would highly recommend. You know, it's a good question. If he says, if keto is natural, why would you need to do special things to help you have bowel movements? You know, I think our ancestors went into a state of ketosis for a couple of reasons. One was just a lack of food availability. So oftentimes our ancestors would have very little food. And so, because, you know, they maybe they weren't able to hunt successfully or their harvest hadn't come in yet or, or you know, just a poor harvest. So they had lack of food availability. So they would under eat because food wasn't around and that would put them into a state of low insulin, uh, fat burning and higher ketone production. So that was very common. And on top of that, you know, in the in the wintertime, there oftentimes was less starchy foods and higher carbohydrate foods. So they were more surviving on, you know, particularly in northern latitudes, they were surviving more on meat and fats, you know, animal fats, animal foods, and less on starches and sugars, I would imagine, during that period of time, which, you know, would would promote more of a keto state. So I think our, our, it, it, there is a natural state of ketosis. Now, the question of should we be in ketosis all the time? I don't believe that's that that's healthy. I, I, I personally don't. I'm not in ketosis all the time. I cycle in and out of it through intermittent fasting. I do believe a lower carbohydrate template is healthy. And when I say lower carbohydrate, I'm talking about like less than maybe 150 grams of net carbs a day. The average American's eating 400 grams of net carbs. So that's 400 grams of carbohydrates, not including fiber every single day. A lot of times they're eating that from highly processed, ultra processed foods. So to get into ketosis, unless you're very, very, very active, you're probably going to need somewhere between 50 to 100 or under 50 grams of net carbs, somewhere in that, certainly under 100 grams of net carbs. If you're going to stay in ketosis, but you might do intermittent fasting and get into ketosis 
while you're deeper in your fast, 16, 18 hours into your fast, you may be in ketosis. So I kind of cycle in and out of ketosis um, through my intermittent fasting on a daily basis. I'm usually eating more like 100 to 150 grams of carbs, mostly from fruit, uh, fruit, you know, some different things like that. You know, that's where I'm getting most of my carbohydrates, raw dairy, organic dairy, Greek yogurt, things like that. I'm getting some carbohydrates from that. But I, I believe in cyclical ketogenic style diet. Now, if you're very, very overweight, you're looking to lose weight, I think that going on a keto cleanse, getting into a state of ketosis uh, for a period of time can be really helpful there. But I go through it all in detail. If you guys have not checked out my book, The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough, I really go through how to most successfully get into ketosis, how long you should stay in ketosis, and then how to successfully cycle in and out of ketosis. So it's a good book to check out. Um, but hopefully that's helpful for you, Jim. Let's go to Angela's question on Instagram. She said, I, I had gestational diabetes. So that means she had diabetes while she was pregnant with her, with her daughter. She says, and since having my daughter, my fasting blood sugar is still semi-high, 110 to 115. I'd really like to start intermittent fasting, but I'm unsure if it's recommended for my situation. I assume I'm pre-diabetic because we know fasting blood sugar of 126 would be diagnosed as diabetic, but something over 100, consistently up over 100, if you were to get a medical diagnosis, you would be medically diagnosed as pre-diabetic. So she's correct there. She says she eats properly. I eat properly to combat it. Uh, developing further. I've listened to all of your podcasts about high blood sugar, but never heard this question answered. This is a really good question. So she has high blood sugar on a, and she's talking about fasting blood sugar in the morning. And she's wondering if intermittent fasting would help that situation or if it would make it worse. And this is a really good question. And so it really just depends on where you're coming from. Are you overweight? Uh, are you looking to lose weight? If you're overweight and you have excess belly fat, it's a sign that you're insulin resistant and then your fasting blood sugar being high would be problematic. Now, for if you're very lean, if you're a leaner individual and you have higher blood sugar and you're on a lower carb diet, it's not necessarily problematic. In fact, you know, it's a it's it's what we call a dawn phenomenon where in the morning time you have elevated blood sugar, and that's because you have elevated amounts of cortisol, norepinephrine, and adrenaline, and your body is revving it up because it's a good fat burner and it also wants to have uh, you know, a, a higher amount of sugar in the blood ready for any sort of activity that you have. I don't get overly concerned about fasting blood sugar. As long as I'm able to look at your hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of like a measurement of how much glycation, where the sugar molecule will actually bind to proteins and cause damage to the blood cell, it will damage the hemoglobin. If that's up over, let's say, 5.5, 5.5%, and you have elevated fasting blood sugar, that could be problematic. It's telling us that you're getting a lot of glycation. So, a lot, and, and that's, causing more oxidative stress and inflammation in the system, causing less effective oxygen delivery to cells. So that's problematic. Or if your insulin is very high, your fasting insulin is high. So I would like to look at those things before I can really make a good analysis of where your blood sugar is. Now, 
What I would recommend is getting out and walking early in the day or doing some sort of activity early in the day that can help bring that blood sugar down. And it's also very good for, for being just feeling awake and feeling really, really healthy and really good. Just getting out, getting early morning sun exposure, getting regular, regular, uh, some sort of exercise, some sort of movement in, I think that's really helpful. And then you can try intermittent fasting. I think you still can do it depending on how you feel, but you might not do it every day. So you might do something like what we call a crescendo fast, where you do a 16 hour fast between your last meal and your first meal the next day, twice a week on non-consecutive days. So let's say you did it Monday and Thursday, you did a 16 hour fast where you ate between, let's say you finished dinner at 7 p.m. and then you waited till 11 a.m. the next day before consuming your first meal. And then you do that again on Thursday. So with intermittent fasting, I think there's such great benefits for it. It's going to make your body more metabolically flexible, better at burning fat for fuel, better at regulating blood sugar, but you don't have to do it every day to get the benefits. I think that's something that is important for people to understand. You can get benefits from it, doing it even two days a week, even one day a week, you're still going to get some benefits from it. So I prefer, I personally feel great doing it every day, but not everybody does. So I think that would be a good way to start. And then I would check your fasting blood sugar. Let's say if you're checking it regularly when you first wake up, let's check it 10, you know, or, or 10 a.m. Or, or like right before you break your fast on your fasting days, right? And kind of see where it's at. Ideally getting it down, you know, around 100 would be good or or even under that into, you know, 80, 90 in that range. But it's not always going to be like that. And that's okay. Again, as long as we're getting your, as long as we're, you're, you're in a very lean state where your body fat percentage is lower and you're not feeling overwhelmed, right? If you're feeling anxious, irritable, if you're feeling the hangry type symptoms or nauseous when you're doing the fast, that could be a sign that your body is not delivering. It's not burning fat for fuel, right? So you're, that's why you're having the cravings. That's why you're having those issues. So I think it's important to understand that. If you're feeling good while you're doing the fast, that's a great thing. That's a sign that your body's burning fat for fuel and it's creating ketones to help support your brain. So that's where you want to you wanna figure out and you can kind of gouge how you feel as well as looking at your blood sugar as you're doing the fast. Good question. So Margaret says, I heard a podcast where they said stevia causes infertility. Is this true? And I've heard other people say this as well. Um, you know, there was a rat study that showed that, and and the the professor, the 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 um, scientist gave real high doses of stevia, which is an all natural sweetener. You grow stevia. In fact, I used to grow it uh, in my backyard, and it grows natural, and you can just pluck the leaves and eat it. And of course, they process those and create you know, an all natural sweetener, it doesn't elevate your blood sugar. They create it in a powder or a liquid form and doesn't impact your blood sugar, has mild to no impact on insulin. It may bump insulin a tiny bit, but not significantly. And there is a concern about infertility because of this rat study. But when I really looked into this in detail, the rats were given really high doses of stevia, much higher than what somebody's going to consume on a daily basis and over a long period of time. And they noticed that they had lower fertility rates or, or, you know, less offspring when they did this. 
there has been no human studies, no randomized control trials that have shown any evidence of any sort of dangers when it comes to stevia. Now, with that said, there are some individuals, roughly one to 3% of the population that has an allergy to ragweeds and stevia is in the ragweed family. And so if you have an allergy or sensitivity to ragweeds, then you may not feel good when you consume stevia. And that goes for anything. I mean, you might have an allergy or sensitivity to blueberries and not feel good with blueberries. And even though blueberries have tons of antioxidants, anthocyanins and resveratrol and all these powerful benefits, you eat them, you don't feel good. Or you may have a sensitivity to dairy and or, or to eggs. So it's a great pasture-raised egg loaded with nutrition. You know, it's got conjugate linoleic acid in there, omega-3 fatty acids. It's got vitamin A, retinol, vitamin E. It's got, you know, uh, choline, all these powerful nutrients. Egg yolk is one of the most nutrient-dense things you can put in your body. But if your immune system is reacting negatively to it, you are not going to feel good. You are going to have problems. And so, you know, if you have a sensitivity or an allergy to something, don't consume it. And then it could potentially cause a fertility issue. If your body is creating an immune reaction, driving up inflammation, every time you consume something, that inflammation, depending on your genetics, it may impact your sperm or it may impact your egg, um, you know, and, and your ovaries. And so it's really important to understand that. So you want to consume a diet that's in balance with your immune system. If there's anything you're consuming that you just feel more inflamed when you consume that, you just don't feel as good. That should be something that you minimize your consumption of and perhaps even avoid at least for, you know, let's say 30 to 60 days and then try it back in, isolate it, and see how your body responds. So I think that that's you know, just a, uh, a really good piece of advice that we all need to understand. So stevia alone, not going to cause infertility. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an example of that. I use stevia regularly during my eating window, not during my fasting window, but I do enjoy stevia. It's my preferred sweetener. My body responds real well to it. Never had an issue with fertility. My wife as well. She uses a lot of stevia. We never had issues with fertility. So I know it's just a anecdotal example, but uh, but stevia, if stevia was causing infertility, we would have had trouble having babies because we consume stevia. So we didn't, that's uh, again, anecdotal, but you know, there's no real good scientific evidence that would would indicate that stevia causes infertility. So, but again, if you have an immune reaction to something, it could potentially lead to infertility. In fact, there's a lot of cases of infertility where people do have underlying leaky gut, food sensitivities, allergies. I mean, gluten sensitivity, um, dairy sensitivity, those are have been known to cause things like infertility for those particular individuals. So if that's you, if you're out there and you're struggling with infertility, I would definitely look at your diet, look at what foods may be driving inflammation in your system and see how you can follow an elimination diet to eliminate those foods, at least for a period of time, and see if you feel better. And if you're feeling better, more than likely your fertility will improve. So I think that's really important. And then whenever I think about it, fertility, I always think about certain nutrients, zinc, probably one of the most important for good fertility, uh, making sure your zinc levels are optimal, your serum, uh, copper and, and plasma zinc levels are optimal. I think that's super important. Um, vitamin D, another important one, omega-3 fatty acids, making sure you're consuming enough omega-3 fatty acids from wild-caught fish, seafood, uh, pasture-raised eggs, 
uh, grass-fed animal products, things like that. That's what I always think about. Those those particular nutrients, also B vitamins like vitamin B6, folate, vitamin B12, all really critical. And there's a lot of people that are deficient in these nutrients. So that's some other um, key things to think about for fertility. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my favorite supplements. It's Paleo Valley's grass-fed organ complex. It's like a supercharged multivitamin that allows you to get a full spectrum of traditional superfoods loaded with nutrients into your body faster, easier, and without having to tolerate the taste. You see, grass-fed organ complex contains not one, but three organs. It contains heart, liver, and kidney, which are extremely rich in B vitamins, vitamin A, minerals, coenzyme Q10, key things like selenium. These nutrients support your energy, your mental clarity, your immune health, as well as your skin. And they're found in the most bioavailable form that our ancestors used to get. You see, whenever our ancestors would kill an animal, they would go right for the organ meat. So the most coveted parts, because that's really where the life force was. They didn't understand nutrients, but today we know that's where the B vitamins, the CoQ10, the vitamin A, the key minerals are really concentrated in these organs as opposed to the muscle meats. And most of us are just not consuming organ meats on a regular basis, but now you can. You can get grass-fed organ complex, get these vital nutrients, they're freeze-dried to really preserve as much of the nutrients as possible. And you can take this again in, in, in replacement of some sort of a multivitamin that you may have been taking before. Guys, check it out. Go to paleovalley.com forward slash jockers and use the coupon code jockers at checkout to save 15% off today. Now, Allie on YouTube, she asks, what do you do for endometriosis? This is a good question. Endometriosis basically is inflammation of the endometrium and the endometrium is, you know, where your uterus, ovaries, that whole area, um, you know, it's called the endometrium. And that it can be a, a factor when it comes to infertility. In fact, oftentimes endometriosis is actually an autoimmune, not always, but can have an autoimmune component to it where the body itself is actually attacking the endometrium. And that doesn't allow the uh, the egg to properly implant in the uterus. And so it can cause problems there. Also with endometriosis, women women deal with oftentimes heavy bleeding, really painful menstrual cycles. So that during their menstrual cycle, it's just extremely painful. Really, you know, the endometrium becomes extremely inflamed, lots of scar tissue in there. And uh, it's just, you know, massive inflammation in those areas. You think about somebody with like chronic joint pain, they're always feeling the pain in their joints. Well, this is kind of what happens in the endometrium. It's just all that inflammation affecting that, that endometrium. And so things that I think about here, you know, certainly gut health is really important. We know that all level, all cases of chronic inflammation, there's a gut health component. So if you have leaky gut or intestinal permeability, we've got to heal and seal the gut. We've got to really help regulate the microbiome. Um, you know, when it comes to nutrition, the key principles I always talk about reducing sugar and grains. Sugar and grains are going to cause blood sugar imbalances. Most of the grains out there, really all grains, they're very, they have very low nutritional value. And then they have what we call a high glycemic load. In some cases, they'll have a high glycemic index where they'll drive your blood sugar up quickly. But even if they don't, even if they're like whole grain um, and they have more fiber with them, 
they may not have the same glycemic impact, but they have a higher glycemic load, which means they drive your blood sugar up and keep it up, keep it elevated for a longer period of time over time. And so because of that, that's going to cause problems with your, you know, it's going to cause more inflammation in your system and the higher amount of, of uh, insulin, the more inflammation you're going to have and the less able you're going to get good quality nutrients into cells because you're going to start to develop more insulin resistance. So sugars and grains, bad fats, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower, cottonseed oil, peanut oil, canola oil, definitely want to make sure we're avoiding those things. They drive up inflammation. We want to focus on healthy fats, avocados. You think about an avocado, I mean, it almost looks like you know an, an ovary in a sense. Um, and so avocados are one of the best things for fertility, one of the best foods. You've got lutein, zeaxanthin, really powerful carotenoid antioxidants in there. You have got uh, this heptalose man mannitol uh, sugar that's actually really great for the skin. It's a polysaccharide that's really helpful in in avocados. You've got um, let's see, you've got a mono unsaturated fat oleic acid that's really good for blood sugar stability and reducing inflammation in the system. So a lot of really good things, potassium, magnesium. So avocados are great, extra virgin olive oil. In fact, I would do high polyphenol extra virgin olive oil, which has these powerful polyphenols, things like oleocanthals and hydroxytyrosol that are great for reducing inflammation, will really help bring down the inflammatory load in the endometrium. And so that that's something that would be good. Grass-fed butter, if you're able to tolerate dairy, healthy grass-fed organic animal products, super key. Uh, as well. So I think that's important. Making sure you're optimizing your vitamin D levels. We know vitamin D is a great immune balancer. So getting out in the sun on a regular basis, one of the best ways to upregulate your vitamin D. And if you're not able to do that, also supplementing, making sure you get your vitamin D levels between 60 and hundred nanograms per milliliter, super key for a healthy endometrium and keeping the inflammation under control. And I, I talked about that autoimmune component, Getting optimizing your vitamin D levels, one of the single greatest things you can do to bringing down antibody and autoimmune-like reactions in the system and bringing down overall inflammation. So optimizing vitamin D, super key here for endometriosis. Um, so those will all be things that I would definitely be looking at. Omega-3 fatty acids, perhaps supplementing with that. You could supplement with things like curcumin or turmeric, which can help bring down inflammation as well. So that's super key. Reducing your toxic load. A lot of women are using natural, uh, or I'm sorry, there a lot of them are using your conventional beauty products, which are loaded with parabens and phthalates. And these things cause hormone imbalances in the system, which can drive up endometriosis as well. So um, making sure you're going as natural as possible with beauty products, hygiene products. So anything you're putting in or on your skin or breathing in, you want to be as natural as possible to reduce your overall toxic load. I think that's super key. So making sure we're doing all of those things, very, very important here. Um, and then I have a really detailed article on endometriosis as well on drjockers.com that you can go into in more detail. But that's a great place to start. Uh, Authenticos on YouTube, he says, suppose you decide to do OMAD, or, or that means one meal a day for 30 days, would you achieve the same autophagy level as in a three-day water-only fast? It's a really good question. So 
if you're just doing one meal a day, meaning that you're basically fasting for 23 hours, let's say you eat that one meal, it takes you an hour. It's a big meal, takes you an hour to consume that meal. So you eat it at six o'clock every evening, and then you fast from seven to six. So it's 23 hour fast every single day. You do that for 30 days. Would you achieve, achieve the same autophagy level as in a three-day water-only fast? Very good question. The answer is is uh, that we actually don't know because we haven't we don't really have a good measurement for autophagy that we've been able to suss out in studies. So nobody really knows the answer to that. But my hypothesis would be yes. My hypothesis would be that autophagy is something that we want to. It's a state, a physiological state we want to move into on a very regular basis, not just you know a few times a year, but on a very regular basis, we want to move into a state of deep autophagy. And I think that if you're doing something like an OMAD or one meal a day on a consistent basis, you're definitely going to dip into that. Your, your insulin levels are going to really drop. You're going to turn up ketone production. And when you're turning up ketone production, your body also needs not just fuel, but it also needs proteins. So that's when it kicks up autophagy. It goes into the cells and breaks down older damaged proteins and recycles them so it can create new healthy proteins within the cells, outside of the cells. You know, it cleans up the proteolytic damage that's in the body. And that's what autophagy does. And so I think that if you're if you're just doing one meal a day, you're going to get a great level of autophagy. Probably better if you're doing that for 30 days than if you did one three-day water-only fast. That would be my hypothesis. Now, do you need to do OMAD every day for 30 days? It really depends on your metabolic damage, right? For me, my per my body, I that would actually not be healthy for me to do OMAD every day for 30 days because I'm already triggering autophagy on a regular basis. I would actually lose muscle mass doing that. And therefore, it's not going to be healthy for me. So for me, I just do OMAD one day a week. I do it every Wednesday. I consume a big lunch and then I fast until lunch on Thursday. And I break my fast with a great workout. So I do basically about a 23-hour fast. I usually you know, consume my meal between 1 and 2 p.m., done eating by 2 p.m. on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, I usually work out from, let's say, 1230 to 1.30 or so, somewhere in that range. And then after that, oftentimes I'll shower, usually break my fast somewhere between 1.30 and 2.30, somewhere in that range. So I'm getting a roughly a 23 to 24-hour fast, and I'm also getting exercise, which is another great way to activate autophagy. And so I do that every single week. And so I am getting a high level of autophagy every time I do that really cleaning up the proteolytic damage that's in my system. But then I don't do that the other six days a week. And I make sure that I'm in a state of calorie surplus, meaning that consuming the amount of calories I need, if not more, like I'm, I'm trying to intentionally eat, you know, a really good amount of food. No, I don't want to eat so much that I'm bloated and I, I have no energy, but I do try to be intentional about consuming a lot of food, a lot of protein in my eating window. I do intermittent fasting every day, but inside of, let's say, a six or eight hour eating window, because that's kind of usually where, where I'm at, I'm usually eating my meals somewhere between one and seven or 8 p.m. And so in that range, I'm consuming a lot of calories and a lot of protein and usually two to sometimes three 
kind of eating periods in that in that phase. And so that really helps my body just recover, build muscle, and so I'm kind of cycling through autophagy and then also muscle building, muscle growth. And I think that's a really good strategy. Now, if you are very overweight, you're very insulin resistant, you're not very active, you're, you know, you, you, you haven't made a commitment to building muscle. I think doing OMAD for 30 days can be absolutely incredible for you or doing a three-day water fast or, or anything like that. So I think it's a great way to drive down inflammation, improve your insulin sensitivity and your fat burning. And so many people have uh, had remarkable healing results by doing something along those lines. Now, ideally, I'd love for you to also move into doing strength training and getting more activity, more exercise. I think that's really helpful uh, for a wide variety of reasons. Exercise is just impactful, incredibly impactful for your brain. As people age, they start losing muscle. We call that sarcopenia. And that's a major risk factor for uh, for mortality, for 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 dying or or you know, getting crippled or developing chronic disease is losing muscle. So I think that getting regular exercise is really important. And the more active you are, the harder it would be to do something like OMAD, uh, depending on your physiological type. Some physiological types, I've seen people that, I mean, they are, they have very well-developed muscular physiques and they're able to really thrive on one, one meal a day, one big meal, and they do great and they don't lose muscle mass. Other people like my body type, I'm an ectomorph, very thinner. I'm thin, narrow shoulders. Uh, my body type will lose weight and will lose muscle mass. And so for me to optimize my muscle mass, but also I try to get this balance of optimizing muscle mass, but also getting rid of proteolytic, you know, uh, protein damage in my system for healthy aging and optimal function. So how do I, how do I optimize autophagy and muscle growth, which in a sense are actually somewhat opposite because autophagy is catabolic. Muscle growth is anabolic. It's building up. Autophagy is catabolic breaking down. So how do I optimize that? It's feast famine cycling. This is where I do, you know, a daily, daily intermittent fasting. But when I eat, you know, when I'm in my meal, my, my eating window, I'm eating really good. I'm eating lots of protein and I'm also working out. I'm doing a lot of strength training. Um, you know, I actually do strength training six days a week. So some level of strength training on a regular basis, I cycle between upper and lower body to really maximize that, to build the lean body tissue. And when I'm consuming food, I really prioritize protein. I'm usually getting somewhere around 200 grams or so, 150 to 200 grams of protein every single day. And that's allowing my body, it's telling my body, okay, build and maintain lean body mass and build it. And then as I'm going into the fasting, particularly into that one day where I, I'll drop into the 23, 24 hour fast, my body's saying, okay, now is the time to get rid of all the damaged proteins. Let's recycle those, get rid of them, recycle them, turn them into healthy proteins that we can really use. And let's preserve lean body mass because my body's very insulin sensitive. So human growth hormone elevates and HGH when it elevates when you're fasting or if you're doing strength training. Uh, that tells your body, hold on to lean body mass. And so you preserve lean body mass, even though you're in that fasted state. Now, if you are calorie restricted for a long period of time, like if you're doing OMAD, if I were to do OMAD, I would say by the fourth day, if I were just doing it every single day, by the third or fourth day, I would start noticing muscle loss and loss of overall performance by that time. I probably could get away with it 
certainly one day, maybe two days before I would really notice it. Cert definitely by the third day, I would notice it. So, you know, it just really depends on what your goals are, what your activity level is, what your body type is. But hopefully that gave you some, some good insight there. Last question we're going to talk about, Judy asks, uh, she says, how do you heal from osteoporosis? Osteoporosis is bone loss. You know, obviously it's associated with aging, although you may be younger and dealing with osteoporosis as well. It's kind of similar to what, what I talked about before, sarcopenia, where we're losing muscle mass as well. So osteoporosis is when your body's in a state of, it's it, there's too much catabolic activity going on in your body. And there's a number of factors here. One is chronic inflammation. It's one of the most, one of the most critical things. A lot of people think osteoporosis is a calcium deficiency. Very rarely is it a calcium, is a calcium deficiency even associated with osteoporosis. Typically, if there is a deficiency, it's vitamin D, vitamin K2, magnesium, because those three are critical for getting the calcium out of the bloodstream and into the bones. So that's super critical, making sure we have enough magnesium on board. That's a really uh, common deficiency. Vitamin D, of course, really common deficiency. Vitamin K2, if you don't have healthy gut bacteria, if you're not eating fermented foods um, or supplementing with vitamin K2 you're probably deficient in it. And that acts like a vacuum cleaner helping along with vitamin D and magnesium, pull calcium out of the blood and into the bones. A lot of people have plenty of calcium in their blood, but they're excreting it and they're not getting it into the bones. So just kind of going through their system, not getting into the bones where, where they need to get it. So that's a key factor. There's also an inflammatory factor. When inflammation impacts the bones, the, we get bone loss, we get weakened bones. And so we got to turn down inflammation by healing our gut, making sure our microbiome is healthy, by making sure we're not eating foods that are driving an inflammatory reaction in our system, by reducing our overall toxic load. We might have infections. Maybe we have gut infections, parasites, or candida overgrowth, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or perhaps we have an oral infection. Maybe we have a root canal that's harboring a stealth infection, or we have gingivitis, or we have a cavitation in our mouth. Maybe we're exposed to mold. Maybe we have mold in our home, and that's driving a chronic inflammatory response in our body that's not allowing our bones to function well. And they're starting to, you know, they're 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 reducing their uh their 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 density because of that, because of that inflammation. So there's a number of different factors that need to be addressed. And those are all things that we need to look at. The low-hanging fruit here, by low-hanging fruit, it's like, okay, what are the easiest first steps for osteoporosis? The bones need nutrients, so making sure we're eating nutrient-rich foods, wild-caught fish, sardines, or what are the best foods? Because they've got the actual bone in them, bone broth. So you're getting collagen, you're getting tons of minerals that are needed, calcium hydroxyapatite, things like that, that are needed for developing healthy bones. So consuming things like that, Pasture-raised eggs, as long as you don't have a, a sensitivity. Grass-fed dairy, as long as you don't have a dairy sensitivity. Healthy grass-fed organic animal products, organ meats can be really helpful. Avocados, extra virgin olive oil, all the great foods I talked about before. Colorful fruits and vegetables, all really, really good as long as your body's able to tolerate those foods effectively. So those would be foods that I would really try to stick with. Um, so making sure you're getting a nutrient-dense diet that stabilizes your blood sugar, prioritizing 30 to 50 grams of quality protein in every meal, at least 30, 
maybe 50, you know, maybe up to 50 or more, depending on your activity level, uh, protein in every meal, somewhere between 15 to 30 grams of healthy fats. We talked about some of the healthy fat sources already, avocados, extra virgin olive oil, pasture-raised eggs, grass-fed meats, coconut oil. Those would all be healthy fat sources. And then getting lots of colors in your meal as well. So I think doing that will really help from nutritional perspective. Now, the bones also need more than just nutrients. You also need mechanical loading. Mechanical loading means that there actually needs to be stress on the bones. How do we get stress on the bones? Activity, walking, unless you are dealing with osteoporosis. If you are, you don't want high impact. If you're just trying to prevent osteoporosis, even some, some sort of high impact like jumping up and down, that adds a stressor to the bones, which causes them to become stronger and more resilient. Um, but doing strength training exercises, squats, deadlifts, uh, lunges, things like that all really help challenge the muscle and also challenge the bone and allow for better bone density as a whole. So getting regular exercise, regular movement, strength training, super critical here. So getting the right type of movement and mechanical loading on those joints, very, very healthy. I talked about some of the critical nutrients. I talked about toxins that you want to you want to make sure that you're reducing your exposure to. Infections can play a role, right? So those are all things that you know certainly you want to want to address if they are factors in your health outcomes. So hopefully that was helpful. You know we talked about some of the key things. You know definitely getting some blood work done, looking at your vitamin D levels, making sure that. Your 25-hydroxy vitamin D is between 60 and 100 nanograms per milliliter. I think that would be really key. So I would definitely look at that. That's huge. Looking at your inflammatory levels, your high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, ideally that should be under one. If that's up and elevated, it's a sign that there's chronic inflammation going on. That may be coming from, you know, oftentimes I'll see HSCRP elevated with oral infections, whether it's root canals that are infected or cavitations from let's say wisdom teeth removal or some other you know tooth extraction that wasn't properly cleaned and sterilized that can definitely drive up inflammation in the body could be from mold exposure could be from chronic stress right chronic stress can can play a role with inflammation as well so there's a number of different factors there but that's really the route you want to go in really with any kind of chronic issue. So, you know, we talked about endometriosis, we talked about osteoporosis, a lot of the same things, a lot of overlap there. Um, all of us, you know, when we, when our body is toxic or deficient, so if we have too much of what we don't need or not enough of what we do need, our body is going to respond with a stress response and we're going to move into sympathetic activation and in our autonomic or automatic nervous system, we're either in fight or flight or we're in rest and heal. And so if we're chronically in fight or flight, we can't heal our body properly. And therefore, we're going to promote inflammation. Inflammation will keep us alive in the short term. It will prevent against some sort of systemic infection, meaning an infection that gets in, spreads wildly throughout our, our blood gets into vital organs and causes meningitis or pneumonia and kills us quickly. So inflammation prevents against that. And, you know, that's really the goal of it. But if, we, if we're not able to turn off the inflammation over time, some tissue is going to become damaged. Some organ system is going to be, is going to, is going to become severely damaged, malfunctional, 
and cause problems. And that's when we get diagnosed with the endometriosis, with the osteoporosis, with the thyroiditis, with the dementia, you know, with whatever it is, this is something that's developed over time. And so that's what we ha- that's why we have to look at it from that perspective. And, uh, you know, really looking at kind of the same factors, many of the same factors is, is key. So hopefully, uh, you guys got a lot out of this. I know I went through a lot of stuff in this Q and a, if you guys have questions again, reach out to me on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast. You can also, uh, leave us a five-star review that helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this podcast. Please share this podcast with people as well. You can follow me on Instagram or Facebook. You can ask questions there as well that we can use for this Q and these Q and a podcasts. So thanks so much guys. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll see you guys on a future podcast. Everybody be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on, or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.